When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Bryn Turnbull about her latest book, The Last Grand Duchess. When I talked to Bryn Turnbull in August 2020, she had just published The Woman Before Wallace, a novel about Thelma Morgan, the twin sister of Gloria Vanderbilt, and as the title suggests, the woman who preceded Wallace Simpson in the affections of the future Edward VIII. In her second novel, she turns a fictional eye on the years leading up to the assassination of the Russian imperial family, told from the perspective of Grand Duchess Olga Nikolaevna. We begin ten years before the revolution. November, 1907, Alexander Palace. The heir and mama's reception room was thick with smoke and rumors, unsettlingly quiet despite the crowd of people gathered within. Flanking the double doors, two footmen stood at the ready, their glittering livery bright against the marble walls. Olga's aunts and uncles gathered near the immense windows, waiting for dawn as light from the ruby chandelier pooled bloody shadows on the parquet floor. From down the hall, Olga could hear cries of pain, the hurried tattoo of feet along the corridor, mirroring the frantic thrum of a distressed heartbeat. She winced, wishing she could drown out the noise. By the fireplace, Aunt Olga paused mid-sentence, gripping Aunt Zena's fingers as they waited for the noise to subside. Uncle Sandro, his arms wrapped around Tatiana and Maria as he read to them from a book of fairy stories, pressed his eyes shut, his face lined with grief. Anastasia, playing on the carpet with a set of building blocks, looked up uncertainly, pushing ringlets from her cheeks with pudgy fingers. At six years old, even she seemed to understand the significance of their younger brother's screams. Still, in its own ghoulish way, the noise was reason to hope. If Alexei Nikolaevich, Olga's only brother, was able to cry, it meant that Russia still had an heir to the throne. And now, please join me in welcoming Bryn Turnbull. Hi, Bryn. Thank you for agreeing to to talk with me again today. Hi. It's so nice to hear from you. Thanks so much for having me on. 
Listeners who'd like to learn more about how you became a novelist can find out from our previous interview, available through the search feature at newbooksnetwork.com. Tell us instead, please, what drew you to the story of Tsar Nicholas II and his family? Well, you know, I'd always have, you know, the story of the Romanovs has always held a fascination for me. And, you know, as as it has for so many people, they are one of the most, um, you know, interesting historical figures uh, of the early 20th century. Um, for me, really, what drew me to the story was the fact that in, in many treatments of them, they're either treated as um, victims, as martyrs, as tyrants. Um, they're really kind of viewed symbolically, uh, and, and their symbolic value is really kind of what drives a lot of portrayals of the Romanovs. Um, and I'm, I'm not just talking about uh, in fiction. I'm talking about um, in historical uh, treatments as well. And for me, what I really wanted to do with this book was look at the Romanovs, not through their titles, not through the fact that they, you know, that they were the imperial family, but the fact that they were a family, first and foremost. Um, so so that really, for me, was, was what I wanted to get at. I wanted a portrayal of the Romanovs, which was just a family with virtues and flaws. Yes, and that really comes through. We'll talk about that more even as we go through the interview. And what makes Grand Duchess Olga the ideal narrative for this tale? So the Grand Duchesses, in so many different portrayals of them, they're viewed as sort of a monolithic entity. Um, and, and even in their own time, they were unusually close. They referred to themselves as OTMA, which was an acronym created by the first letters of all of their names. Um, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and and that that's wonderful. You know the the fact that they were all so so very close, but it also I think leads to a, a rather reductive view of who these young women were individually. Uh, so with Olga being the eldest daughter, um, I, I was very interested in in what her life experiences were. We often view the Romanov daughters as children. Um, they're often portrayed as children. Olga was, in fact, 23 when she died. And she had some incredible life experiences um, before uh, before her untimely death. Um, so, so that, for me, was really interesting. And, and one of the things that really first drew me to Olga's story was this uh, historical note that I kept hearing in different accounts of the family uh, from from retainers who'd written down their stories um, in in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, a lot of them mentioned that after Rasputin was murdered by a member of Olga's extended family, um, Olga remarked to them that she understood why they had done it. And that really stood out to me because Olga and her sisters are are very often seen as incredibly sheltered young women, and, and they were very sheltered in a lot of ways. But that remark made me realize that Olga was more politically aware than I certainly had, had previously given her credit for, and that really was what drew me to her story. Uh, add on top of that, her romances, uh, her experiences nursing in the First World War as a Red Cross nurse, uh, there was so much to draw upon to look at um, this remarkable young woman. Even before we get to the passage I read in the introduction, uh, the book offers a horoscope cast by Prince Charles of Denmark in 1896, the year of Olga's birth. He predicted that she would not live past 30. Why start the novel there? Honestly, it was because when I found that, when I found that line, it was just too poignant to pass up. Um, 
the fact that there was this horoscope that had been drawn the day that she was born and it said she wasn't going to live past 30. And, and unfortunately, tragically, that that prediction came to pass. It just felt the, the, the Russian story, the Romanov story is one that's bound up in so much um, you know, mystery and mysticism uh, with Rasputin. There are a number of prophecies that um, that kind of come about in in this book, and that one really just kind of sent chills sent chills up my spine, and and so I I, I really I just couldn't resist putting it in as the prologue. In the beginning, uh, by by which I mean the beginning of the novel, not her beginning of her life, or though I'm, she does seem to struggle with it for quite a while, she, uh, Olga struggles with the reality that because she was born female, she cannot rule, uh, even if her brother dies because of the hemophilia that afflicts him. And that's not a spoiler because everybody knows that. She expects to endure a different fate. And for her, endure is the right word. Can you explain what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Olga throughout her life in her diaries, in um, in, in a lot of the different sources, uh, uh, accounts from people that knew her, they talk about the fact that Olga really didn't want to leave Russia. She didn't want to marry into a foreign prince's court, which of course was the you know the predestined path for a grand duchess or a princess. Uh, in political terms, it was, you know, go forth and, and multiply, so to speak, um, help build the dynasty, help strengthen Russia's ties to the wider world. And and Olga really kind of balked against that um, from a very young age. She actually extracted a promise from her father, Tsar Nicholas, that she would not uh, have to marry for political reasons. She'd be allowed to marry for love. And and that was so interesting to me that that she had that conviction um, so early on, and and she did stick to it. She stuck to it through her life. Uh, there were a couple different uh, matches that were kind of put her way, and she was the one to say, it, it, "This isn't this isn't what I want." She couldn't rule uh, because she's female. Yeah, so that that is something that really was such a a hindrance to the family, this notion that women couldn't rule. And of course, Russia had had female rulers in the past, Catherine the Great, most notably, uh, but Catherine the Great's son, um, he changed the rules, he changed the law of succession, so that women couldn't, uh, couldn't be put in the line of succession. And and that is such a shame, because that does draw draw one of those what if moments. Nicholas and Alexandra had four healthy daughters they had four very dynamic daughters and if Alexei had not survived if they'd been able to pass the crown on to one of the daughters Russia may have gone down a very different path. Um, By the end of the opening scene uh, Rasputin has arrived Uh, his name of course is a household word and Empress Alexandra's devotion to him is also well known but how does Olga see him uh, both in the early scene and moving forward? Uh, because you mentioned this very interesting quote uh, that she understood why he had been killed. Um, how does that relate to all of the, to her reaction to him? So Olga's relationship with Rasputin, all of the daughter's relationship with Rasputin was the subject of immense speculation during their lives. Um, you know, the the Russian shadow court, the Russian elite all kind of whispered about what hold does Rasputin have over the family? And, and some of the speculation was, was really quite um, scandalous and reputationally harmful, shall we say. 
but by all accounts, Olga and her sisters didn't have a, uh, you know, it wasn't an animo- it wasn't a, um, uh, it wasn't a difficult relationship with Rasputin. He, he was very much a trusted family friend. Um, but Olga really, you know, in the book, I portray her as, as having a bit of a, a wariness around him. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's something that you see kind of crop up in the book through other people's reactions to him. And, and she's quite aware of the fact that Rasputin is not uh, all he makes himself out to be. Uh, he was very good at kind of portraying one side of himself to the imperial family and then a completely different side of himself to the outside world. And so while her parents, while her mother in particular only sees the good in Rasputin, Olga having a bit more of a, um, of a relation of, of a connection to the outside world through her aunt Olga, through friends that she makes at the tea parties, through the soldiers that she nurses, she can kind of see the other side of Rasputin. I think in a little more clarity than her mother does. So, so the relationship, I, I didn't want to portray Rasputin as, as evil. I didn't want to portray him as, you know, as, as the villain of the piece, because I don't think that he held a villain role in Olga's life. Um, I think, I think he was someone who tried to help the Royal, the Imperial family and um, was, was, kind of as misguided as as Alexandra in what they were trying to do but I don't I, don't, I didn't want to portray him as, as as the bad guy I didn't want to kind of take the animated film's portrayal of him with a bat on his shoulder a wisecracking bat on his shoulder or anything because um, he was just a man he was just a priest and he he was an incredibly complex individual as uh, I mentioned, the book starts in 1907, but throughout it goes back and forth um, between the early days, mostly starting with the tercentenary of Romanov rule in ni- 1913, uh, and then the events of the revolution, uh, beginning with the February Revolution and then continuing through the um, assassination of the royal family. And again, that's not a spoiler because it's well known. Why did you decide to um, to tell the story in this back and forth uh, fashion? rather than just starting in 1907 and moving forward? You know, it was funny. I was thinking about this recently, and I realized that both of my books, uh, The Woman Before Wallace and The Last Grand Duchess, are about abdications uh, in, in their own strange way. And, and with this one, the abdication of Nicholas is really kind of... That, that. I knew that I wanted to center the book there. I wanted it to start with the revolution. But I also didn't want the book to be just about the final days of the, of the Romanov family. I wanted to look at what led them there. I wanted to look at kind of all of the dominoes and see how um, see how they were set up and, and how they fell uh, by the end of their lives. So, so kind of having that back and forth structure to me allowed me to kind of look at the contrast in the life before and, and life after the abdication, which I thought kind of lent, lent itself to an interesting mirroring effect. It's it, it sort of each part or each each before and after they each sort of have a three part story structure, uh, particularly the after after the abdication scenes because um, it's structured around the three imprisonments of the Romanov family first in Alexander Palace, then in Tobolsk at uh, at Freedom House, and then finally at Apatiev House in Ekaterinburg. So I wanted to kind of have a mirroring effect with what happens before uh, before the abdication and then in those in those later days. Yes, I did notice the mirroring. It's very effective. 
Through Olga's perceptions, we get a clear sense of her siblings and her relationship with them. And as you noted, this is a book about them as a family more than anything else. How would you describe the siblings and her relationship to them or how she sees them? Well, Olga very much viewed herself as the leader of her of her sort of sibling group. She, she and her siblings were all incredibly close. Uh, she and her sisters were incredibly devoted to Alexei. And as the eldest daughter, um, Olga really did feel a sense of leadership and a sense of responsibility over, uh, over the daughters. There's this one scene in the book where they're, uh, you know, they're preparing for the tercentenary parade and Olga's sort of trying to corral her, her younger sisters into, uh, into this carriage. And, and, there's a bit of a, you know, there's a bit of a chaos around it. And, and I, I really liked kind of the, the thought of these sisters and the close bond that they had. I wanted to reflect the Atma of them um, without kind of reducing them. They all had incredibly distinct personalities and they were all very devoted to each other. And they were a lot of fun, I think. You know, you look at uh, photographs, the whole family, they were all um, avid amateur photographers, Maria and Anastasia in particular, and you look at the pictures that they, um, that they took, a lot of them you can just Google and, and find them online, and it's this rambunctious, there's this energy, this rambunctiousness about them. It's them skating down, you know, down the deck of their ship, um, you know, and, and dancing, with, dancing with officers and things. And it, there, there's just this sense of joy with the family, which I, I really did want to portray. I almost saw them a little bit as um, it, something about them made me think of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women and the relationship between the sisters and Little Women. There, yes, I hadn't thought of that connection, but you're right. It is there. And of course, those were four sisters as well. Talk a little bit about the, the personality differences between them. Yeah, absolutely. So so Olga, Olga was, you know, she was the eldest. She was sort of the, the leader of the pack. She was uh, she was a little more retiring though than her sister. She she was by all accounts an incredible musician, and um, and, and she was she was very um, charity minded. She was very sympathetic and focused on uh, on the needy in the community. Which um, you know there, there are stories of her as a young woman, um, you know, paying out of pocket for uh, you know for a young child, an orphan child's education. Uh, just an orphan child that she'd heard about, and she wanted to make sure that 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 child was educated. So she she was very conscientious, and she had that that sense of duty and that sense of responsibility. Tatiana was um, Tatiana was very much the um, competent one. She she was sort of seen as this competent sister um, during the First World War when she and Olga trained as Red Cross nurses. Tatiana is the one that really stood out. In that situation, she becomes this very, very accomplished nurse, uh, even helping in a lot of the more advanced operations that took place in the Annex Hospital, which was the small officer's hospital where Olga, Tatiana, and their mother, Alexandra, all served as Red Cross nurses. Maria, by all accounts, was the sweetest. Um, Nicholas, at one point, when she was when she was very young, talks about the fact that she she stole a cookie off of the tray, and he was relieved to know that uh, that she was capable of childhood mischievousness and and wasn't so much an angel as as she appeared. Um, and she was also she was also quite a beautiful beautiful young woman. Louis Mountbatten, until the end of his days, um, had a picture of her on his bedside because he'd been so in love with her 
as a young man and wanted to marry her. And then Anastasia, the youngest, um, she was an absolute fire plug. She's just this ball of energy. She's incredibly mischievous. She's constantly playing pranks on her siblings. She was known as the imp uh, amongst the family because because of her habits of uh, of kind of getting into trouble and making up trouble. I, I start the, the first time that you see Anastasia in the book, I reference this uh, this fascination that she had with worms and she wanted to breed worms. And, and that, that's actually, uh, that, that's a known fact. She, she was trying to breed worms, which just, you know, kind of shows you this offbeat, oddball energy that she had, which I thought was so endearing. And Alexei, although he's ill, um, is actually a very, um, at least he comes across in your book as a very rambunctious character, too. I mean, he's he's constantly, the, the reason for his constant attacks is that he, you know, he goes out riding or he, he slides down a hill or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I did, uh, I did quite a bit of research into hemophilia and, and the impact that hemophilia has on, uh, on people who have it. Um, and a lot of them, is, it, it, it disproportionately affects young men, uh, young boys. And one of the things that is, is kind of comes up in the, in the literature about people with, who, who have hemophilia is that sense of risk and that sense of risk-taking that they have because so much of their life is spent kind of um, in, you know, kind of wrapped in cotton batting, if, if, you know, if I may. And young boys aren't cautious by nature. Young boys are rambunctious. They want to have fun. They want to go out and, you know, ride and, and spend time and play with their friends. And so I wanted to reflect that in Alexei's character, that sense of, of recklessness of a, of a young kid that is, at war with the, you know, with the care that he must have taken and the frustration that he must have had at the fact that everybody was so on edge about his condition. Um, I think that must have been incredibly frustrating for, for him as a young boy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes, I'm sure it was. Um, in some senses, Olga is really more of a mother to her siblings than her own mother is. Uh, talk to us about the Empress Alexandra. She comes across as a difficult character um, in history as well as in your novel. Yeah, I mean, Alexandra was a difficult character. She had, you know, she had a lot of early life experiences, which I, which I think probably set her on the path towards that um, towards that difficultness, if, if you want to call it that. Um, but in, in terms of Olga's relationship with her mother, it is very much one where she loves her mother, but she also, I think there was certainly a sense of frustration at her mother's constant um, ill health. And also, you, you know, there was the ill health. Her mother had, had a poor heart. Uh, she had nervous attacks. She, she spent quite a lot of time in a wheelchair, actually, and she had these splitting headaches and and Olga would write in her diary about whether the headache was a one on the pain scale a three on the pain scale what kind of pain her mother was in on a daily basis she she writes about that in her diary so 
But on top of that, on top of the ill health, Alexandra, I think, if you took the ill health out of it, Alexandra was a difficult woman in the sense that she really didn't engage with the role that she had. She didn't engage with um, Russian society, really. She never, you know, she she, she was raised in Germany. Um, she had an incredibly close relationship with Queen Victoria and revered um, England and the English ways of life. And she really never took the time to try and understand Russia. She didn't really take, you know, she didn't really bother to learn Russian. She kind of knew it, but she didn't, she couldn't converse very well in Russian with, with um, people who, who could have been close to her. She, she was very much in love with Nicholas, but um, you know, I, I think that if she could have shut the door of the palace and not seen anybody, she would have been quite happy to do so. So I think for Olga, who wanted kind of a bigger and more exciting life, than her parents, who were both quite shy and retiring, wanted. I think that would have been very frustrating. And and Olga certainly does take on a lot of the roles that the Empress should have had. Um, she often accompanied her father on, um, you know, to the opera and and to balls and things where uh, Alexandra should have been at Nicholas's side, but Alexandra just didn't want to go. Nicholas himself comes across as a great dad, if perhaps not a great emperor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he, he 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 was. I mean, for all of his faults, and, and Nicholas, let's, let's be serious. Nicholas had incredible faults as an emperor. Um, but for all of his faults, he was a devoted father. And he was incredibly good to his children. I mean, back to what I said earlier about Olga wanting, you know, Olga kind of exacting a promise from him that she would be allowed to marry for love. This is in the early 1900s and her father is her father is absolutely on side with that and I think I do give him credit for you know for giving his daughter that autonomy in her life um so for me I really think that Olga this book is about Olga realizing that her parents are flawed people that her parents really fundamentally um contributed to their own downfall but she loves them, you know, they're flawed people, but she loves them and they're, and she has a good relationship with her family and she, she wants to have that sense of duty with her, with her family. And, and so I think that that there's a real kind of push and pull in Olga's life where she's coming to that realization that her parents, her parents aren't perfect individuals. And that's a pretty um, big achievement for someone who is only 23 when she dies. I mean, most of us don't get there until somewhat later in life. Um, but despite all these responsibilities, uh, Olga is also a young woman uh, who likes to go to parties and falls in love. Uh, so tell us a bit about Pavel Voronov and later Dmitry Shachbagov. Yeah, so Olga's, Olga's romantic life it's an interesting one because on the one hand, she was very sheltered and, and in a lot of ways, she was quite naive in her approach towards towards romance. Uh, you look at her diaries and she's talking about these, um, you know, she's talking about the objects of her affection almost as if they're like schoolyard crushes. Um, you know, they're, they're absolutely flawless. They're perfect, perfect men. Um, you know, it's, it's like she falls, she falls quite heavily into puppy love, I think, a number of times in her life. Um, but her 
her opportunities for meeting young men were, were limited. So, you know, Pavel Voronov, who really was kind of the first love in her life, he was a sailor on board um, her father's yacht, the Standard, uh, and he was an officer in the Tsar's Guard. And the reason Olga was able to spend time with him is because they would go on the ship for summer holidays and, you know, the Tsar's Guard were there. They were there protecting the family. So I think, you know, in, in both of those cases, Pavel Voronov, he was a, you know, by all accounts, he was a, he was a nice young man. It was a very innocent love courtship. I mean, I think, I, I don't think that either Pavel or Dmitry Shakhbagov had any illusions as to what could have happened. I think that both of them, it was an innocent courtship, but uh, Olga, Olga was very, very much infatuated with both of them. When, when Pavel marries, um, at one point, she writes in her diary and says, may he, he, may he be happy, my beloved. And you can tell that her heart's breaking in that moment. But she, she loves him enough and she is mature enough to let him go, which I think is, is quite something. And then with, uh, with Dmitry Shakhbagov, here's a young man that she wouldn't have had an opportunity to meet if it weren't for the war. He was a Georgian um, adjutant um, in the Erevan Grenadier Guards, and he gets wounded in service uh, to the Tsar in the First World War, comes to Olga's hospital, and she's one of the nurses that nurses him back to health. And and that experience in the Annex Hospital is such an interesting one because I think for Olga and Tatiana both, it opens them up to meeting a whole host of people that they would have never otherwise encountered. And I think that that, that really does lead to Olga's kind of realizations about what's happening to her family and what's happening in Russia and the fact that the storm clouds gathering on the horizon are much darker than her parents are willing to acknowledge. She was also considered for a political match uh, with Prince Carol of Romania, um, uh, but that didn't work out. Can you uh, explain why? No, it did not work out at all. Um, by all accounts, Carol and Olga loathed each other, literally on sight. They they couldn't stand each other. Carol of Romania is a um, a very complex historical figure, putting that lightly. Um, go on his Wikipedia page, and and you'll see all of the the later developments with Carol. But he he was not he. You know, he didn't seem to be a particularly pleasant man. Olga actually talks at one point, um, she talks in her diary about going and sitting out in the sun all day before one of Carol's visits so that uh, she would ruin her complexion and be unbecoming to, to Prince Carol. Uh, so so that was certainly not going to happen, particularly given that Nicholas had, had given Olga his word that she would not be forced into any marriage she didn't want to be, uh, she didn't want to be a part of. But Carol's, an in, you know, there there is an interesting what if with Carol because on his last visit to the imperial court, Carol actually proposed marriage to Maria, and Maria, being the third daughter, Olga and Tatiana weren't settled. Nicholas kind of laughed off the suggestion, um, and I think one of the reasons he, he laughed it off was Maria was, by all accounts, his his he had quite an affection for Maria. He, Maria was his favorite daughter, and so you know. That that suggestion gets shelved, but there is a what if moment in history because what if if what if Carol and Maria had married, 
and Maria was not in Russia at the time of the revolution. Um, you know, would she have been a rallying point for the white Russians? Would she have, uh, you know, would she have leaned on Romania or on, you know, on the other imperial families throughout Europe to uh, to be more proactive in intervening to rescue the Romanovs? Um, you know, who knows? Yes, indeed. And it's, and that really extends to the daughters as well, because, um, I mean, Romania didn't do so well um, during World War Two, so it wouldn't necessarily have fixed things for the daughters. But in terms of getting them out of the country before the revolution, any one of them could have survived in various different places. Yeah, absolutely. Felix uh, Yusupov and uh, Olga's cousin Dmitry Pavlovich uh, also play important roles in the pre-revolutionary part of the story. Uh, can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, um, Felix and Dmitry were very close. Um, there is speculation as to whether they were lovers. Uh, we don't know conclusively one way or the other, but Felix was the wealthiest man in Russia, um, wealthier even than the than the star and his family, and he and he and Dmitri had this reputation for drinking and carousing and you know being out late at night uh, to the point where Nicholas and Alexander actually sat Dmitri down and said you need to slow down your your lifestyle is getting a bit too fast. Um, but you know they they were really interesting characters to write Dmitri in particular. Uh, because, and again, no spoilers. <laughs> um, no, Dimitri, Dimitri is, a, is a really interesting character to me in particular because he was very, very close to Nicholas. Um, and he was actually another, another young man who was touted as a potential suitor for Olga. And Olga concluded that she, she thought his lifestyle was a little too fast for her. But, uh, Nicholas, is, er, sorry, Dmitri goes from being sort of one of Nicholas's right-hand men to participating in the assassination of, of Grigory Rasputin. And so for me, looking at that turn of his character um, was, was really, really intriguing. I, I, I really, I have to say, I enjoyed writing his character most out of, I think, pretty much anybody in the book other than Olga. Uh, just to look at what, what happens. How do you go from being part of Imperial Russia, part of the most privileged, privileged class to being really one of the instruments that, that sparks, you know, causes the spark that leads to, um, you know, leads to the downfall. I, I thought it was really quite interesting because of course, Rasputin, um, he, he predicted at the end of his life, he predicted that if he'd been, if he was murdered by members of Nicholas's family, then Russia would never be saved. Uh, Russia would Russia would fall into revolution and open warfare, which um, of course it it did. It did. Uh, it's it's a little hard to buy Rasputin's uh, view of the whole thing since he <laughs> he clearly had an interest in, in having that story spread oh, about. 100%. But, um, but it was, yeah, it, it was if he if he's killed by if he was killed by an average an ordinary Russian everything would be fine. If he's killed by one of Nicholas's family members, then the country would fall into revolution, which, yeah. So what's your take on Nicholas and Alexandra? Do you think yourself that the revolution could have been stopped? 
I don't, I don't know that the revolution could have been stopped. I think, I think that Nicholas and Alexandra were very naive in, in their views of Russia. They, they quite famously were not open to modernizing, to changing with the times like other monarchies across Europe had done. I mean, you look at, um, look at England for one example of a monarchy that, that was willing to kind of um, be a little bit more flexible. Russia didn't really do that. Um, change was forced upon, uh, change was forced upon Nicholas with the signing of the October manifesto and the, um, you know, the, the establishment of the state Duma, which turned Nicholas from an absolute monarch into sort of more of a constitutional one, but he never really accepted that. And I think that that, I, I think that he always viewed himself as an absolute ruler. He always viewed himself as absolutely right. Um, Alexandra certainly took that view as well. They, their, their position was God-given and whatever they wanted kind of would go. But that just wasn't the world that they were living in, and and that wasn't the country that they were that they were ruling over. So, you know, I think Rasputin was a symptom of a greater unrest and a greater um, tension in in the Romanov lives. Uh, I don't think he was the cause, certainly, of the revolution. Um, you know, do I think that they could have avoided it? I think that if they'd I think that if they'd been a little bit more flexible and been more willing to um, accept guidance and accept um, accept in, input from other people, they, they may have been a little better off. So what would you like people to take away from the last Grand Duchess? For me, the really, you know, I, I said it at the, I said it at the outset and, and for me, it really is the key to this story. It's, it's a, it's a portrait of a family. And it's a portrait of a family that is, you know, that has its merits and has its flaws. And, and so that, that really is what I want people to take away from it. It's a book about a family that loves each other despite the circumstances they're in. Um, and, and it's about choosing, um, choosing family and choosing duty in, in times of incredible, uh, incredible hardship. And, and family certainly had, you know, certainly had hardship at the end of their lives. And what of you? Are you working on something new already? I am indeed. I'm working on my third novel. It is about art theft and forgery in occupied Paris in World War II. Good. We look forward to it. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Bryn. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Bryn Turnbull about The Last Grand Duchess. Find out more about her at www.brynturnbull.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.